We mentioned last week that there is a logical flow to these verses where Matthew records Christ's rising words, not his dying words, but his rising words to his disciples. Jesus begins these these final words with a statement, a statement of his authority. Goes on from that statement of his authority to a statement of fact. And then a commission, an imperative, and he ends the message with a promise. The initial statement Christ makes is his claim that all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. The imperative that follows from that initial claim is, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. The promise is his concluding statement, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So Jesus says, I have been given. I have been given. Therefore, because I've been given, do this. And as you do this, I will. I have been given, therefore do this, and I will. These are the statements that are before us. These statements summarize all that Jesus taught about the kingdom of God in those days. And so it is clear from Jesus speaking this message, the Holy Spirit causing Matthew to record this message as the essence of what he taught in his in his last days with his disciples, that there is a very great connection between the Christian life and the Christian calling and the power of God. It could not be more clear. We might think, how could it be made more clear? It's so clear that there is a connection between the power of God, the power of God that has been given Christ and the power that we are to live by that it couldn't be made more clear that it couldn't be stated more powerfully that there could be no greater demonstration of it than the risen Jesus spending 40 days teaching this and yet during those 40 days Jesus makes even more clear and following those 40 days 40 days later the Holy Spirit and and God in heaven makes even more resoundingly and brilliantly clear the connection between the Christian life and the power of God. The Christian life is a life of power. This is indisputable. Here we are told that Jesus has received all power in heaven and on earth. Why would it say that he had received when he was God from all eternity? When he was creator of all that is according to other passages in scripture. How can God, the source of power, receive power? Two options exist in answer to this question. The first is that as son, he was granted power from the Father to do all that he ever did in creation and all that he continues to do as Savior and in his governance of creation, that work that we know is divine providence. God gave it to his son to do these things. By giving this answer, 
that God gave his son power at the very before time began on earth. By giving this answer would simply be affirming that Jesus has had all power throughout all ages from the Father's hand. And thus we would interpret his statement here to be about that eternal nature and unchanging power. Not a statement predicated on and tied to his death or his resurrection. The second option here, however, is that Jesus is speaking of a more recent granting of all power in heaven and on earth. This answer views Jesus' incarnation, his becoming man, as a laying aside of those heavenly privileges he had been granted by his Father from before time. His not regarding these things as something to be grasped, these privileges and power, and by this view, then, the authority which Jesus acted on in earth was not him displaying his native sovereignty as God, but him depending on God as a man. And thus Jesus was like us in the power that he held and that he worked with. He was empowered by God through the Holy Spirit. He was fully human. Now, having triumphed over sin and death as a man, Jesus has received back his kingly throne and crown and sovereignty from the Father, and God now demands that all men everywhere and all created beings praise and worship his Son as a conquering king, and he returns to him his, his sovereignty, his authority with even greater honor. This seems to be the message of Paul, doesn't it, in Philippians when he writes of Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a, of a slave, being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, God also highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so we have two possibilities. Jesus has always had power, and he's just stating the power that he's always wielded, or that Jesus actually laid aside his power and then receives it back with greater honor and glory and is going to one day be revealed to those who did not see his power because he laid it aside while he was on earth, will be revealed as the king of glory. And all men will worship, and all angels will bow to him, and all the elders will cast their crowns before him, and he will be worshipped by all, every knee bowing, every tongue confessing. I believe we should see Jesus as telling the disciples here that in their commission and in their calling and in their witness to him, they should not think they are going in weakness or empty-handed, but in confidence, the confidence that stems from his eternal power and authority, which has now been handed back to him in full measure. He now has all authority in heaven on earth, in himself, governing nations, the orbiting stars, the rising of the sun, the setting of it, governing the king's life and the paupers alike with no more attention to one than the other, 
governing even Satan and hell itself, as well as the hairs on your head and every breath you take. This is the authority I believe that Jesus is claiming here. This is the authority that scripture declares him to have. This is what he's saying. I have all authority in my hands, in heaven and on earth. I govern all. What an assuring statement. What a, what a confidence-giving claim. What a, what a reality to live by. Not only does this authority get spoken of and does he give a promise that we will be protected by it here, but he tells his disciples if it's possible, if it's possible that they should wait, it is possible, but if it's possible to conceive, not possible for Christ, it's, it's almost inconceivable, they will receive more power. He says, wait here 40 days after I've gone, and then you will receive power on, from on high, and you will do even greater things when that power comes on you than I have done. So, Scripture promises power. Scripture promises power to the Christian. There is just no way around it. Forty days later, after his ascent into heaven, the disciples receive that power, and it is transformative. If they are empowered now by having been around the risen Christ, and they are, they're different men, they are empowered in a way that is like the second stage of a rocket sending it not just up in the air but out to the moon by what happens on the day of Pentecost. So there is no question that the Christian life must be a life of authority, must be a life that gives evidence of power in many areas many many areas power to fight our own sin power to fight sin in the world power to declare power to heal power to do many many things it's indisputable jesus gives this gift of power to his disciples and not just to these 12 the chosen apostles but the indwelling presence of the holy spirit that gift of heaven's power is promised to everyone who follows him in every age of the church until he returns. So we have and we find in the Bible a promise of power for your life. We have this promise, it's there. But what does this power look like? What should this power allow you to accomplish? This is the question, isn't it? What does this power look like? Does it look like the power that Jesus lived by during his 30-some years on earth? Or does it look like that regnant power that is his now in heaven, the reigning power of Christ? Does it look like the power that Jesus displayed through the Holy Spirit, the power of a man operating under the will and the power of God on earth, does it look like the power that he claims now where he controls all things all things are bound together in him and he gives them their being and their future and their past which of these is it well it, it's interesting to note <clears throat> the disciples receive on the day of Pentecost a power that is a power that exhibits itself in a number of ways. They do miracles. 
they work great miracles and the, and the world is astonished by the power that they have. Uh, it's indisputable that they did miracles, but they had done miracles under Christ as well. So it's not simply a matter of Pentecost, is it? That they worked those miracles. They had done them earlier. And note as well that it seems quite clear from the Gospels that the miracles were focused primarily around the day of Pentecost rather than extending to the very end with Paul. So Peter is released from prison. Peter has God protecting him. The angels come and do things. But as Peter's life goes on, he operates with the same power, but the miraculous nature of that power in terms of its contravention of what we would say as physical laws of this world seems to decrease. In fact, at the end, he's led by the hand to death. He's beheaded or he's crucified under, under Caesar. Further, we have to acknowledge that this power that comes upon the disciples is more like the power of Christ while he was alive on earth in that it looks like foolishness to the world rather than like power. Now, when Christ is revealed to the whole world as the Son of God, the King of Eternity, the Bible is very clear. No one's going to wonder anymore. Everyone is going to bow. Every knee will bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God. Every tongue confess on, in heaven and on earth. There will be no denying it. But the power that God gave his disciples through the Holy Spirit is much more like the power that Jesus wielded that it could be mocked, it could be killed, and yet it was real. One day that power is going to be revealed in you as in Christ, as, as true sovereign power. But at this point, we've got to recognize that the power the disciples received does not keep them from dying. And in fact, at points where Jesus as man is under attack and his disciples want to respond with some form of earthly power, he says to them, I don't need that power. I don't want your swords. He who lives by the sword will die by the sword. And then says to Peter, don't you know that if I wanted to, I could call for, for a dozen legion of angels, 72,000 angels, and have them release me but I'm not going to do that and that's not the power that I'm living by and that's not the power I'm giving to you stop it so as we turn our mind more more seriously to consider what the power Christ has promised you and me in these days of his of his resurrected living on earth so we turn to that question, we've got to recognize that that question in part is answered already by his character and by the power we see in the lives of his disciples. The presence of power and authority in the Christian life is not in question. 
The question is, what does it look like? What is its goal? And how you answer this question is going to determine how you live. Is your life as a Christian a life that you lead seeking to accumulate power so that one day you can change the world by the power that you accumulate slowly and steadily over a lifetime? Or is the life that you lead as a follower of Jesus Christ a life of power today? Which is it? Now, I'm not denying that the power of the disciples, the power of the apostles did increase over time. No doubt they were more able to confite their sin. No doubt they were more able to do things and convince people and speak God's word at the end of their lives than at the beginning. All right, so there is a certain growth. But is the power that God promises you like any other power and authority in, on earth that you must accumulate, grab, grasp, pull into yourself, eventually rising to use, or is it pregnant within you right now? Are you pregnant with power? You may say, well, I think it's both. It's both future and now, and yes, in a sense. But the question fundamentally remains, even if we admit there is growth along the way, does divine power gird you now? Is Christ's power in you today? Are you to operate by power and assume power, or are you to pursue power? Are you to live powerfully, or are you to live to obtain power? You can be timid in power, timid in strength. I've known people who have plenty of money and who have absolutely no confidence in it, no willingness to spend it. They live like Ebenezer Scrooge, <laughs> and they may as well not have money. Have you known people like this? Find no joy in it, find no ability to spend it. It's true in many areas of life. Some young men are like this with women, and some women with men. There's a man who is passable and looks in intelligence, in income. But that man is confident in himself. And he's confident in his ability to ask a girl out, and he talks to girls with ease, and that man gets the girl, doesn't he? You know? He goes after a girl, and he gets her. And you can have a guy who has looks and income and intelligence and everything you think is necessary that would be necessary to find a young woman but he lacks confidence and he can't buy himself a date. Am I right? Same is true with women. You can have a beautiful woman who is a sweetheart of a girl, but she has absolutely no confidence and no guy will ask her out because it's wasted on her. Right? You want to say to this man or this woman, the one who has everything and doesn't need it, stop trying 
Stop accumulating, start living. Stop seeking and start being something. So which is it in the Christian life? Is it power as a pursuit, power as a goal, or power in your pocket? Power you've been given and is yours. The answer is clear in our passage. Jesus says, go. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Go to foreign lands. Win them to me. Go where you're frightened to go. Go where you think you won't be received. And every place you go, go and make disciples. Teach my message. Call people to me. Literally, Jesus doesn't say go. It's, It's interesting. Every translation I'm aware of says go as though go is the imperative. Go! He doesn't say go is an imperative at all. He says, it's in the aorist, it's in your going, as you're going, make disciples. He doesn't command going. The imperative is make disciples, teach them to obey, baptize them. That's the imperative. He assumes you're going to go. They were called to go. They were the sent ones, disciples, you know, apostles. And now that they're about to do so, Jesus isn't saying, go! He doesn't have to say that. He wants them to know that in their going, they have power, they have authority, and that this authority will be in them to do their work. Can you imagine going from Swanton, Ohio, or Metamora, or like Milan, Michigan, to include you Michigan folk. Going from these podunk cities to the financial capital of the world in New York or to the, the capital of the, greatest, the strongest nation on earth, the wealthiest nation, to Washington, D.C., going there and expecting to be heard with a message that you say is from God. Can you imagine going to Wall Street, being sent by God, and going to Wall Street and saying, I have a message for you. I'm speaking to you people. The barrier wouldn't be getting the people to listen to you. The initial barrier would be to get you to think you have anything at all that people will listen to. Isn't that right? The barrier isn't getting people to listen. The barrier is getting you to speak in the midst of the high-powered people of Wall Street, in the midst of the the significant people wandering around Washington, D.C., and you're from Podunk, Ohio. Podunk, Michigan. What do you have that will get these people to pay attention to you? So what do you do if you have a message from God for Washington, D.C. or Wall Street? Well, if you're like so many Christians today, here's what you do. You think, well, if I'm going to be heard in Washington, if I'm going to be listened to in Wall Street, then I need to have some authority and power before I get there. I need some status. I need more than a soapbox to stand on. I need something that's impressive about me. I need to gain authority. And then when I have gained authority and when I have gained status in the eyes of the people who live on in Washington and work on Wall Street, when I've gained status in their eyes, then I'll get to speak. So you go to Washington. And you seek power in Washington. You begin as a clerk and you rise. And finally, you think you're becoming significant. But there's always a little more significance. I need to be this high and then I need to be this high and I need to be this high. 
and you keep rising. You have a voice eventually within the corridors of power and you are heard in, in the matters of, of national governance, but you're not quite certain yet that you can speak for Jesus. You've worked for power, you've, you've attained it. Do you now speak for Jesus? Will you? This is the way of so much Christian thinking today. This is the way of the Christian world. Seek power, seek status, seek authority first, seek these things in the eyes of men, seek them in the way of the world, and then I'll use it for God. But you waste your life seeking. You waste your life pursuing. And when you gain what you think you needed, you have lost your fire, your power from on high, your authority that you began with in Jesus, and you accomplish nothing despite years of effort, decades of trying to amass authority. Our authority is from on high. It is a gift, not from men, but from God, from heaven. It is not earthly. And so these disciples go out. They follow Jesus' command. They go. To a man, they go. And almost to a man, they die, promulgating that message around the world. They are martyred in Rome. They are martyred in India. They are martyred in Ethiopia and France. They have no earthly power. They seek no earthly status or position. But they go before kings. And they declare Jesus Lord with such glorious authority from on high, such authority that the kings look at them and say, do you really think you're going to convince me in an hour to be a Christian? That's how they go. They go to Rome and they speak boldly. They go to Athens, the intellectual capital of the world, and they declare down in the city, in the streets, among the common people in the agora, the market, they declare, Jesus is Lord. They declare it so boldly and so freely and so confidently that having been heard in the agora, they're invited by the top wits, the top minds of the city, the philosophers, the, the forum of the philosophers, the Areopagus, up by the Parthenon on Mars Hill. And there they go as well, amidst the brilliant men and the minds of Athens, who are gathered to discuss philosophy and they declare Jesus risen from the dead. Jesus, savior of mankind. And they declare the exact same message they did with the shopkeepers in the marketplace. And it has power. They stand before Caesar. They die at Caesar's command. But though Caesar is not one, his empire is conquered. Conquered by Christ. One, by the powerful witness of these dying men of power and authority and glory. Your power is not of this world. It does not require years of cultivation. It does not come as a result of you having a base of authority and power that's a, a city-state that has embassies around the world and you're wearing a crown that causes even presidents and prime ministers to pay you obsequious respect like the power of the Vatican. Your power does not require glorious temples, uh, 
rising above the city, up to the golden angel on top holding the, temp- the, the trumpet like the Mormons have in Washington, D.C., in San Diego, and elsewhere. Their glory is physical and obvious. Your power is not won by the brilliance of your young scholars trained classically in logic, elocution, and rhetoric like so many evangelical Christians think is the cause and the the way to power for God today. Look, if there's one thing we need to be clear about in thinking of the Christian's power, it's this. It appears when it's used. It appears when it's relied upon. It appears when you take it up and use it by faith. It's not cultivated. It's not earned. It is not gained in the earthly way. It's folly to the eyes of earth. It's stupid. It is not earthly power. It is not the power of the sword. It is not the power of the human government. It is not the power of the Supreme Court. What a mistake we've made as Christians in thinking that if we, if we assiduously cultivate authority and power in the country, we will eventually overcome abortion. So we vote for Republican presidents and we say they will do something. And we go through 40 years with you know, dozens of years of Republican presidents and they do nothing and nothing happens. And then we finally get a president who does the thing he says he will and appoints justices to the Supreme Court. And we put our trust in Trump and we put our our trust in his justices in that. In the, hallelujah, the day comes when Roe v. Wade is overcome. The ruling is overturned a year ago. But what do we find a year later? Well, what we find is that in plebiscite after plebiscite, vote after vote, in, in state after state, the people like abortion. They want abortion, they vote for abortion. We've been fighting for power, and we haven't won minds and hearts. And abortion will never be conquered by the activity that relies on the power of this world. We need the power of God. What does this mean today? What does it mean that Christ's power is not a thing we pursue and live for, but a true and present reality. Now, it means everything. And for American Christianity, Christianity it almost changes everything. It, it turns everything on, on end. Power is a spectacular tool. It is a wonderful tool granted to followers of Jesus. Like any great tool, it's enthralling. It is wonderful to feel power in your hand. It's like driving a Corvette. Some of you have done that. You know, you hit the accelerator. Oh, man, it's powerful. I loved it the time I did it. It's like the, getting a great new tool for you. <laughs> the best tool I got in the last year, last year and a half. Man, it's a wonderful tool. It's a $50 tool. Father's Day is coming, wives, you can, you can get this tool for your husbands. It is a torch, but it's not like a little propane torch. You connect it to a 
pound tank of gas. It has a long wand and then it has like a barrel at the end this long. And a valve up here. And you stand here and you light it with the little piezoelectric thing and you turn on the valve and it goes whoosh. It sounds like a jet engine taking off and flames. I could burn Zach. He wouldn't even get clear, close enough to me to, to tackle me. I'd keep him at bay. Some of you probably wish you could do that with Zach, don't you? Do you? <laughs> How many of you have been taken down by Zach here or lifted up? <laughs> so, Zach, you wouldn't even get close with this thing. It's so beautiful. It makes noise. It is hot. I was working on the cracks of my driveway, and uh, I realized my shoe was melting, and I was out here, and it was winter. It's a great tool. It's wonderful. In the end, however, a tool is just a tool until it becomes used toward an end. You may enjoy it, but a tool has a purpose. And the end of our lives is not power, the tool that he's given us, but Christ. The end of our lives is to know Christ and to lead others to know him. That's the end. The power is just the tool. It's a great tool, but it is not the goal. We can pursue Christ, and if we do, we will have power. But if we pursue power, it's not of Christ, and it will not give us Christ. And so what does this mean? It means that unlike all the Christians around you, honestly, unlike anyone you know, when you see something that God would have you do, you go for it. You don't wait and accumulate wisdom and power and significance and all these other things that you need to go for that thing. Praise God for the examples we have of this in David, in Scripture, but one of which is David with Goliath. David sees the glory of God at stake, right? Goliath is mocking the Israelites and their God. David goes around saying, hey, guys, isn't someone going to stand up to this giant? All the guys say, you're a punk. You don't have the age. You don't go back to the sheep. What are they waiting for? They're waiting until they grow taller or something. Or until they get some advantage in weapons. They're, they're waiting. They're doing the sensible thing and they're waiting, right? And David finally, the word of this guy going around saying, hey, I'll fight him, gets to the king. And the king says, you're just a boy. Well, at least let me outfit you with my weapons, my armor. And David puts on the armor, which the king thinks you've got to have some armor. David says, it's not working. I can't do it. And all he goes out there with is his shepherd's tool, his sling. He picks up some stones on the way, and he goes out, and he kills Goliath. Because he didn't stop and think. He didn't seek to accumulate strength and armor. He went and did the will of God. Stop thinking. Stop accumulating. 
Go and do the will of God. Speak the truth about Jesus. Love Jesus before the whole world. Love Jesus. Love him because he died for you. Love him because he knew you when he created you. Love him because he took your sins, carried them on Calvary. Love him like these disciples love him at this point. They love Jesus. You're just like them. He's done the same for you. He's offering you his power. He's promising you his glory. So love Jesus. Just do it before the world. Love Jesus. Be unashamed. Hold him up before the world. And as you lift him up, he will draw all men to himself. Stop accumulating and waiting. Start doing. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage and the way that it challenges us. And I pray, Father, that we will heed it and that you will give us strength to do rather than to wait. Encourage us in doing, Father. Show us the fruit of it. Cause us to be, to be so in love with Christ that we can't stop speaking about him to others. Put us on fire for your glory, Father, in your Son, we pray in his name. Amen.